Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. We're continuing our study of Romans today. Hey, Juan and Lewis and Ken and Mike and Keith and the rest of you who are joining us now or later later via video or podcast. Glad to have you along. Um, so I'm tired. I'm really tired. I have not slept well the last several nights, so <laughs> hopefully I will uh, be coherent as we go today. If I misspeak, uh, please let me know, although uh, I have no doubt that at least some of you will make it very clear if you think I misspoke. Glad you're here anyway. Uh, hey, hola, Edgar and Caitlin, glad to have you with us as well. All right, so uh, yesterday we left off with uh, verse 15 of chapter 1, and Paul says, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm, I'm willing, I'm ready, I want to come to Rome and preach the good news. And then he says in verse 16, what uh, is often referred to as the theme verse of Romans, for, this is why I am eager to come to Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. When I see a phrase like that, it makes me ask the question, why would he feel the need to say that? What is there about the gospel that would cause someone to be tempted to feel shame? Why would you need to say, I'm not ashamed of it? Why would he want the Romans, the Roman Christians, to know that Paul is not ashamed of the good news? Well, he doesn't tell us. Uh, I'm going to speculate here. Uh, Paul was imprisoned repeatedly for preaching the gospel, and he may have been in prison as he writes this letter. There is a shame attached to that. He says to uh, other uh, Christians in the New Testament, don't be ashamed of me or my chains. Right? There's, there's a there's an, uh, sort of embarrassment that is attached if you know, we, don't, we don't hold in high esteem people who are in prison. And so there, there's a there's a shame. There's a um, uh, there's a, a a stigma attached to someone who is in jail or prison. And as we talked about yesterday, the Jews uh, did not value Christianity. They they called it a sect. It's the Greek word from which we get the word heresy. And you can see how the uh, Jews and others might use this as a way to speak against Christianity. Oh, you follow the teaching of that guy, Paul. You mean the guy who's in jail? You're, you're one of his? You, you believe in the same things that he does? He's in jail, you know, uh, for his preaching and teaching. So uh, that seems most likely to me that Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed. Yes, I've been in prison. Again, maybe he's in prison now. I'm not ashamed of the good news, and I want to come and proclaim it there in Rome as well. And no, notice how he describes the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes. In this good news, that's what the word, the word gospel means, good news. And it's a word borrowed from Isaiah 52, how blessed on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. We'll see that again in chapter 10. I'm not ashamed of this good news. Why? Because it is the power of God. God has invested power in this message, in this news that I'm bringing you. Uh, by the way, that makes me think we need to remember what the gospel is. There is a distinction to be made between preaching the gospel and sharing a testimony or bearing witness. A witness explains or reveals what he has seen firsthand, right? If you're, if you're called to, to bear witness in a trial, the, uh, the judge, the court wants to know what have you actually seen. And you say, this is what I know. This is what I saw. And testimony is, is the same kind of word. It's I'm, I'm sharing my experience with this topic, which is not quite the same thing as proclaiming a message or news. Paul says, I want to come and preach the good news of God to you, those, those of you in Rome, because it's the power of God for what? For salvation. For deliverance, the word could be translated, which should cause someone to ask the question, what is it I need to be saved or delivered from? Right? God has given us the power for deliverance, for salvation. From what? What do we need to be rescued from? Well, we'll see if that answer is, uh, is revealed here as we go. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you can see how he's continuing what we've been discussing so far. The context, the broader historical context here is uh, speaking the truth of God and the gospel in a hostile setting where the Jews want to Paul to stop. He want, they want the gospel to stop, at least in its form, that he's been preached. They, they want to bring the law, circumcision, to and attach those things to the gospel, as we will see throughout the letter. So Paul says, look, this, this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This idea of salvation for everyone is, again, is going to come back in chapter 10. He's going to quote Joel 2 and say, uh, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in that context, which we'll get to, everyone there means everyone, Jew or Gentile. Same message saves both. That's going to be a repeated theme in Romans. The same trust or belief in this gospel message is what saves. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, which uh, someone asked the question uh, in a previous video, uh, I think maybe it was yesterday's, uh, what is this word Greek and barbarian that you talked about earlier? What does that mean? I think Greek is simply a, a word to describe non-Jews here. His point is, it's the same means of salvation for Jew or non-Jew, it's the gospel. That's where God has invested his power for salvation. For, another explanatory statement, for in it, that is in the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. All right, there's a lot to unpack here, and uh, I'm going to raise some questions that I won't necessarily answer today, but I want you to wrestle with the language, that the wording that God has given us here, and challenge the assumptions that you bring to the text. And here's, here's what I mean. Uh, I mentioned the other day, I forget which day, uh, this passage is what revolutionized Martin Luther's view of everything, especially of the gospel. He read Augustine's uh, commentary on Romans, and when he saw this phrase, the righteousness of God, and he read Augustine's interpretation of that, it changed everything for him. So look at this phrase, righteousness of God. It, it's a semi- similar ambiguity to what we saw the other day with uh, the obedience of faith. Uh, sometimes when we have a phrase with the word of, you know, two words separated by the word of, um, it, can, it can lead to am- ambiguity. Uh, this phrase, righteousness of God, does that mean righteousness from God or is it possessive God's righteousness? Uh, the Greek doesn't help us here. The Greek is just as ambiguous. It could go either way. Paul could be saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for in it is God's righteousness. Or he could be saying, for in it is the righteousness from God. The language could be translated either way, could be taken either way. And of course, we have to let context decide that. Uh, We get a a similar question in uh, Ephesians 6 when we think about the armor of God. Is that God's armor that he's wearing? Or is it the armor that God gives? And we have to let the context uh, tell us that. And then, uh, like here, we're going to see there the armor of God. You also have to go back and, and see how that is used in Isaiah and why Paul is using it there in Ephesians 6. Same thing here. He's going to quote from uh, Habakkuk that we'll look at in a moment. And that may give us some clue as to what it means. Now, so Luther, before reading Augustine, assumed that it was God's righteousness. The righteousness of God was God's righteousness. And then he came to see, uh, came to agree with Augustine that it was the righteousness God gives. What's the difference? Do you know the difference between God's inherent righteousness and a righteousness that God gives to others? Probably most of you are from a, uh, a reformed background. Seems like most of my followers are, and would hold uh, strongly to the what we call the doctrine of sola, sola fide. Uh, yeah, Lewis already got there with this simple word imputed. If it's righteousness from God, that would be righteousness imputed to the believer. This is, uh, we often think of the doctrine of justification, God declaring the, uh, the sinner just declaring him righteous. God gives you righteousness and declares you righteous 
based on the righteousness he's given to you. Right, that's the traditional Reformed doctrine of justification. <laughs> Edgar says, 1689, baby. <laughs> he's talking there, of course, of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, right? Uh, but I missed. Com- com- oh, Ken says, you're going to pray for me to for rest. Thank you, brother. I, I, I hope the Lord will answer that prayer. I'm, I could use it. So if it's God's inherent righteousness, what would that mean? If Paul here is saying the gospel is God's inherent righteousness, what does that mean? What, what, what's the, what kind of righteousness is it? Well, it would be God's justice. Yeah, very good, Lewis his justice. And this drove Martin Luther crazy because the only righteousness of God he could fathom was God is a just judge. He is right. He always rules rightly. His righteousness is his right rule, which as a sinner, that's bad news, isn't it? God is a just God He is righteous, you are unrighteous, therefore he will condemn you for your unrighteousness. And he lived most of his life as a Catholic, Roman Catholic, lived most of his life feeling the weight of his sin, and he couldn't find grace and mercy in the scripture, in the character of God, because he was so aware of his sin. Then he's reading this, and he's reading Augustine's take on this, and Augustine said, no, this is not God's inherent righteousness, this is the righteousness that God gives to the sinner, and he said, the, the, the gates of heaven opened up and I walked through. That's when he says, I understood the gospel, that this is God's giving us his righteousness to make us right in his eyes. So the question is, is Luther right now? In, is Augustine right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first, then Greek, for in it is the righteousness God gives to the sinner. Or is he saying, it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, for in it is God's inherent justice. And then notice here he doesn't say given. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made known. doesn't say it's the righteousness of God given to anybody. It's revealed, and it's revealed out of faith. Into faith. That's a very strange phrase in the Greek here, and in English for that matter. From faith into faith. And then he quotes from Habakkuk, it is written as it is written. So there's a comparison between what Habakkuk said and what he's getting at. All right, so let's go back and look at Habakkuk. And this is, uh, this may press you a little bit. That's okay. Let's just wrestle through it and see if we can understand what Habakkuk is saying. And then we'll come back next week and see if we can figure out how Paul uses the, the, the quote, okay? So he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4. You know me. I want to catch the context. I want to see what leads up to this statement in Habakkuk to give us some background as to why uh, the Apostle Paul would quote it here. So Habakkuk 1.1 says, the oracle which 
Habakkuk the prophet saw, by the way, some of you may say Habakkuk. That's quite all right. I'm not sure we know how it's pronounced, but I usually say Habakkuk. So this is what he saw. He cries out. He starts off, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. You don't deliver. Okay? I need to be saved. I need to be delivered because there is violence and you, Lord, are not saving me. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. All right, so we know what he's talking about now. He is looking out at the people of Israel, God's people, and instead of seeing law-keeping, he sees violence and destruction, strife, contention, fighting, and they couldn't care less about God's law. Justice, doing the right thing, and judging others rightly, it's not on anybody's mind. So the people of God here, the, the Jews, are wayward and wicked. See that? So he says, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. There is no justice. No one's keeping the law. No one's enforcing the law. Israel's a mess. Now God responds. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. All right, Habakkuk. Take a look. Look out around you. Pay attention because I'm going to do something. If someone came and reported this is what God's going to do, you wouldn't believe it. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That fierce and impetuous people. All right, so stay with it here. Habakkuk is observing the Jewish people and he sees wickedness and corruption and injustice and he says, Lord, I've been crying to you for a long time and you're doing nothing. And God responds and says, I'm about to do something. Look out at the nations. I'm mustering the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people. See, see what's going on? You're looking at the Jews. I'm telling you, look out at the nations. They march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. In other words, they consider themselves the standard of justice and righteousness. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter at, to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. This is a really strong army and they just crush every king and kingdom they encounter. Then they sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. So these are a mighty people, but they are self-sufficient. They worship themselves, their own strength, and they will be held guilty. But they crush kingdoms in the wake. Well, Habakkuk responds, and this, uh, this is just 
unacceptable in his mind. Like, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. See what's happened? He looks out at the Jews and says, they are a wicked, corrupt people. God says, I'm going to bring this fierce, violent, wicked people, the Chaldeans, and they're going to crush everything in their wake, including the Jews. And now Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, you're holy. You, you wouldn't do that. We, we're not going to die, not at the hands of these wicked people. Lord, you have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. No, no, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You can't do this. You can't, you can't judge your people with the Chaldeans. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up? Those more righteous than they. See what he's doing here? He's saying the Jews are more righteous, even though I just described them in their wickedness. They're more righteous than the Chaldeans. You, you can't use the Chaldeans to swallow up the Jews who are more righteous than they are. Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually lay, slay nations without sparing? You're really going to let the Chaldeans do this to us? Habakkuk says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And how I may reply when I am reproved. <laughs> so, so Habakkuk is, is sort of speaking back to God here. Like, no, this can't be. I'm going to stand here and wait until God rebukes me. <laughs> but he will answer me. I'm sure of it because uh, this just doesn't make any sense. This can't be. And here's what the Lord answered. He said, record the vision. I want this written down. I want everyone to know that I said it beforehand. Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. I'm giving you a warning beforehand. Write it down so that someone can read it and get out of Dodge when the Chaldeans show up. For the vision is yet for an appointed time or the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So God's giving fair warning to his people. And he says to Habakkuk, it's going to happen. It's being delayed, but it will happen. And write this down so people can read it and run. Behold, as for the proud one. Now in this context, what would be the proud? Who would be the proud one? The one who says, no, nah, it's not going to happen. His soul is not right within him. But the righteous, so in, in contrast to the proud one who says, no, this won't happen, the righteous one will live by his faith. Now, what's interesting here is this word faith is used a handful of times in the Old Testament. And everywhere else, it always means and is always translated faithfulness. 
Now, again, those of you who come from a Reformed background, you know that as we study these things from a systematic theology perspective, we are given to drive a wedge between faith and faithfulness. And the whole doctrine of justification by faith does not want to allow faithfulness in any way to be in the discussion. My question to you is, does the scripture make such a harsh distinction, such a a strong distinction between faith and faithfulness? Here, the word, at least according to all the other occurrences, should be translated faithfulness, but the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. Well, there's a reason why the word faith and faithfulness have the word faith in. They're they're born out of the same idea, right? You believe, you trust, and then you act on that belief. So I think we make too sharp a distinction between the two. Faith and faithfulness are kind of two sides of the same coin, it seems to me. In this context, the proud one does not believe God's word and he doesn't take any action on it. He stays where he's at, and the Chaldeans are going to wipe him out. But the one who's righteous will live. He will be spared because he believes God, he has faith, and he will act on that belief, and he will run. And then God goes on and gives more uh, judging words for wicked Israel. All right, so... It's time to wrap up. We're past time here. That's the quote. The righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, for deliverance. We don't need to be saved. No one today needs to be saved from the Chaldeans. No one in Rome needed to be saved from the Chaldeans. We've got to ask the question, what do they need to be saved from? How does believing in the gospel save them? And is this context here, the righteousness of God, is it God's just judgment on the wicked and the proud? Is it a gift of righteousness to those who have faith? And what does this mean that it's revealed out of faith into faith? So think about it and give it some uh, some a second, third, and fourth reading, read ahead. Here's a little clue for you. Check and see if this phrase, righteousness of God, appears anywhere else in Roman to see if that helps. And, uh, and see, see what your answer would be. Uh, tomorrow's Friday. We'll be Fridays with the fellas, so we'll come back on Monday and continue Romans. Let me see. Peter says, could it be that the righteousness of God in this context is God doing the right thing by bringing about what he had promised to do, fulfilling the prophecy? Um, but would that have any, how would that bring salvation and would that have anything um, to do with our faith and faithfulness? Maybe. It's an interesting observation. Uh, Wrestle with it. Think about it. And we'll come back next week and uh, talk about it some more. All right. See you gentlemen tomorrow and the rest of you will see on Monday. Have a great weekend. Take care.